podcast. This is episode number 44. And today it's uh, myself, Aiden, uh, Laura and Rory, and we're talking about hormones and their effect on muscle mass and fat loss in relation to you know bodybuilding, powerlifting, um, but a pretty heavy focus when it comes to, to bodybuilding. Um, so just the considerations of the sort of main hormones you're thinking about when it comes to increases in muscle mass and strength, uh, just some, some guides as to how to modify your training if it's necessary based in these areas. So really good episode, a lot of really good information. Um, so hope you enjoy it. Yeah, so hormones are, um, we probably all know lots of hormones, but maybe don't realize they're hormones. You'll have heard of words like insulin and testosterone and estrogen. And these are all hormones. And it's a it's a name given to a specific type of chemical produced by the body um, in something called the endocrine system, just one of your many systems. And the role of these chemicals is to travel from one organ to another or from one body part to another um, or from an organ to a tissue and to take a message. So they're, they're chemical messengers and they help ensure that the whole body is working out as one. One, um, that, that parts of the body that are far separated get a message about what's going on somewhere else and know how to react in response to that. So as a general classification, chemical messengers within your body um, is a good way to think about it. Cool. Okay, nice one. Um, all right. So if we're talking about sort of like the big the big main areas that, uh, that are let's say, advisable to focus on when it comes to strength or body composition, what sort of stuff are we talking about just in terms of what are the main hormones maybe people might want to be aware of? Um, the same, Laura, if you just want to stick with that one. Um, I think obviously we have all of the hormones that are related to your metabolism and how your body uses energy because when it comes to muscle function um, and whether you're able to build muscle, get stronger, you know, use energy and train hard, those, those, mus- those, those hormones have an effect. So obviously that's all of the kind of insulin and glucagon and everything that's going on generally within metabolism but some of the really important hormones that affect um the tissue that we have in our body everything from bones to muscles to tendons to ligaments are the key hormones that are one of the main differentiating factors between males and females and that would be testosterone in the male case that's a very very important one when it comes to what happens in your muscles um and also estrogen um for females is kind of it's not a testosterone equivalent they do different things but we can think about it as being the main um sort of sex hormone for a female that drives things like um, muscle growth or, or, or affects the conditions that affect muscle growth and bone density and, and everything else like that in the same way that testosterone does for males. Um, okay, yeah, thanks. So if we're, if we're kind of talking about then the, the main drivers what, between um, male and females or feminine and masculine qualities, um, what would you say this sort of big areas are for for females? Sorry, what do you mean? Um, to basically just kind of touch on the aspect of, of estrogen. So, and going into your thoughts on when it comes to muscle building and body composition, when it comes to women, what sort of the main, the main things we're thinking about. Um, for instance, really going into it, going into estrogen and how and why it has an effect. 
So I think when we look at the bottom line, I guess, do we program the same for males as we do for females? Yeah. And I, I still think that's a really sensible thing to do. I think that, you know, gaining strength is gaining strength and adding muscle is adding muscle. And we're all humans and we will adapt and respond to the same principles, things like progressive overload and, you know, the, appropri the appropriateness of the training stimulus. And we, we all adapt in similar ways. But there is an important difference between a male and a female still. And that is the, the sex hormone. So everything else we have is kind of the same. We all have we all have insulin. We all have glucagon we all have organs like you know kidneys and livers and pancreas but we have a difference in terms of our um the gonads or the, the, the sort of sex <laughs> organs and the hormones they produce i don't know what the technical word is <laughs> so these are one of the differences and the main thing that that has on a hormonal level is that males have a lot of testosterone in their body or testosterone is a very very predominant hormone for them whereas females have estrogen progesterone and a lot of other hormones that, that go along with that but a main difference here obviously is that females have a menstrual cycle the female body is exposed is supposed to be able to adapt in a different way to a male and that a female may choose to have a child and the body will have to deal with that and recover from that so the hormones that are there are just to help with these differences and it, it you know, we should probably consider the differences these hormones have on the body um, and, and for it to be one of the considerations that we take into effect when thinking about what risks females are exposed to that maybe males aren't or what benefits females might have or males might have in some situations um, so that it can be part of the programming if we recognise that for a particular person um, there is quite a strong effect. Now, oestrogen is a hormone that females have and um, unlike a lot of other hormones, it will rise and fall in a cyclical way throughout a monthly period. Um, so that can mean that over the course of a month or, or whatever someone's cycle is, this hormone can go from very, very low levels to very, very high levels. Now, the amount of variation that we can see there varies from person to person. But in some cases, it can be as little as a 10 times change. Um, so from base level to peak. And from some cases, it can be a 100 times change in that level. And that can become significant when we think about what the impact um that this hormone can have on the body is. Now, research has shown that estrogen does have a very significant role to play when it comes to every type of tissue in the musculoskeletal system. So we're talking about bones, and bones, bone structure, We're talking about muscle, muscle structure, tendons and ligaments. So every type of tissue has receptors to estrogen and gets affected by the estrogen concentrations in the blood plasma. So it does have an effect. Um, and the way that it affects these different tissues, the degree to which we have confidence coming from medical science is kind of variable. There's a lot of confidence and a lot of research on the impact that estrogen has on bone tissue. There's a lot less confidence and less research on the impact that estrogen has on muscles, tendons and ligaments and the things that we are very interested in um, as people working in the strength sports um, and you know really focusing on getting muscles to grow and, and tendons and ligaments to provide stability and to be strong and to, to minimize the risk of injury so the effects there are less known but there are, there are starting to be um, and I've looked at a review that was kind of done in 2019 over the um, effect of estrogen on muscle tissue um, and tendons and ligaments they're starting to be growing evidence that supports some quite generic statements. We don't know the, the exact mechanisms yet, the hows, but it does seem to be that having um, a high level or a good level of estrogen um, in a female body um, does play a supporting role when it comes to growing muscle mass and when it comes to recovery from exercise. Um, but it also does seem to have a little bit of a compromising effect when levels get too high on the um, tension held in ligaments and tendons. And it can actually promote an increased risk of um, 
of injury um, in female athletes over the male athletes in the equivalent sports um, at parts of the hormonal cycle, cycle where estrogen levels are very, very high. So it becomes a little bit of a trade-off. It's like, you know, estrogen gives you lots of great benefits, but it can also have a little bit of a downside. And it's maybe just about um, managing the risk versus reward of a high estrogen environment. Cool. Okay. This one. Yeah. Come back to that when I come to sort of talking about um, the considerations for training. Rory, just in terms of, I guess, hormones when it comes to a male, or maybe you want to be kind of careful with a say here, someone who has, you know, masculine qualities. What uh, what do you want to think about um, from hormones there in that scenario? Yeah. So um, there's there's a few that are linked with um, muscular growth or muscular hypertrophy. Um, the main ones that are linked are um, testosterone, uh, which is probably the one most people have heard of. Then there's uh, a couple others called IGF-1, which is insulin growth, insulin-like growth factor one. And then there's growth hormone as well. Um, and they're all kind of stimulated or seem to rise when uh, people who do some form of resistance training. Um, for the purposes of this, we're probably going to mostly focus on testosterone because that seems most widely known. Um, and partly, I think it's probably the one that has the most most research on it and the most um, the biggest impact. Um, so those are the those are kind of the main hormones that are linked to hypertrophy for for males generally. Um, the idea that brought that about in terms of where the idea that hormones are linked to hypertrophy um, was came from studies done in the past where um, there would be kind of short rest periods and then uh, they were kind of almost like high intensity training stuff where they do like short rest periods um, and that does trigger greater increases in um, in testosterone and that was thought to then be okay right so if testosterone is increased that must be what's driving hypertrophy in the body um and then also if you do inject someone with like supra so greater than physiological levels of testosterone it does boost it does boost um growth of muscle fibers um without any training like if you don't do anything it just increases it um so that would that would make the obvious like link between right okay if i take testosterone that's going to make me grow more i'm going to get bigger because of that yeah. right and there is some truth to that however um after further like later studies have come out now that have shown it was more the fact that the people doing that sort of training where they shorten the rest periods were actually just doing more overall volume than the others so mm. they it was more that they just got more training in and we know a quite robust thing is that more training volume you do you tend to grow more for for weight training and that's just become more more apparent with just few, more and more research that it's just not there's there's definitely a link between testosterone and muscular growth it's a part it plays a part in some way but from the evidence it doesn't seem as clear cut so it's not there's some studies that find it does have an effect some that don't so it's really unclear what role it plays um, but it seems that a good example or a good study to show this is people who um, are have prostate cancer. They have to get their like testosterone levels massively reduced to help with the treatment of that. 
Um, so when that does happen, um, a study did this with those uh, patients and they um, gave them basically just protein to see if like, if we gave them a protein, would, would that help stimulate muscle muscle growth? And it didn't seem to do anything with just protein. But then when you did a bout of resistance exercise plus the protein, you're um, relative to other, other uh, I think, age match controls, I think um, they actually found that their uh, muscle protein synthesis, so how much muscle you can make, was actually not significantly different to those who didn't have the effects. So if it's the people who say had testosterone within their system. So that would then suggest that, right, so testosterone isn't one of the big factors. It's, it doesn't mean that they got the same effect. It's just not as much. Um, so, and then also there's like some other, other studies by Schoenfeld et al did kind of a review of the whole, whole studies that in the area in 2013. So it's a little bit, a little bit older of a study now. Um, but he also found that there doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to be a causative link between the two. So it might just be more a correlative link. So when high testosterone is higher, people tend to grow more muscle. Or uh, the other factor that could be interesting here is the amount of androgen receptors that people might have within their body can be variable between individuals. We've spoken about on the podcast before how individual responses are different to training. And this might be one of those uh, actual factors within the body that drives that when it comes to hypertrophy. So if you have a high response to hypertrophy, they might have just greater amounts of androgen receptors, which is what testosterone binds to on the muscles to have an effect on the muscle cells. So it could be that people have that. Therefore they're just more sensitive to testosterone on top of the fact that they get, um, they get their resistance training stimulus as well, which then bumps up their response to being high responders. Um, however, training doesn't seem to influence that number of androgen receptors. So it might just be, that's what you're set at. Um, or we don't know this because we don't have the data. I don't think anyway, is that like, it might be over a very long period of time, your testosterone starts to have more of an effect. And that's where it kind of builds up over time. And that's where we might see those correlations of people who tend to have more testosterone within their system tend to have more lean muscle mass. And it might just be a case of over time, that little bit of extra that you get from having maybe more androgen receptors or that little bit extra testosterone within your system that leads to that correlation to, to become true. Well, when, when it came to um, insulin, for instance, um, I remember I haven't looked at this for a while, but in terms of exercise, so if you had told when it came to diabetes and being able to shuttle um, nutrients into tissue, specifically uh, glucose in the muscle cell, um, and insulin being sort of driving factor, then if you added in um, an intense bite of exercise, it basically removed the necessity for insulin, and that sort of was caused by the intense bite of exercise. I'm curious if we're sort of talking about something relatively similar here. Um, if you're, if you were to say roughly if you could make a um don't want to say a guess um from the from the research is that when it comes to testosterone like what what would you say is the actual rule there when it comes to gaining muscle mass for someone like what is what's the limiting factor there do you have any idea i think um i think it's it, it's 
a, a part, like I said, I think it's a part to play. I'm not exactly, I don't think we actually know what role it has yet, as far as I can tell. It's like unclear. It doesn't seem to be exactly clear what, it's definitely having an impact. And there might be, stud, there's, there's probably some studies out there that do have an idea and, and um, but from a, I guess, from more practical side, there's not really anything that I can, that I know of that is driving that. Uh, like what is testosterone driving specifically? I don't know. Um, but I'm sure when it does bind to muscle tissues, it's going to change the biochemistry within them to hopefully facilitate or put things in processes that allow more or helps drive some more um, muscle growth. And if you, if you had like none, or if you had a lesser amount than someone else, which would line up with the information we have when it comes to those sort of, populations studies i guess yeah i think when i think about hormones as well i think a lot of the time they work in a similar way to an enzyme or a catalyst and there is a specific en energy barrier to a reaction happening you know it's it can might it's maybe that the body won't do it unless some threshold is crossed usually what an enzyme or a catalyst does is it reduces that energy but that that barrier so that a pathway becomes much more accessible um mm -hmm. and I think that's just what these kind of hormones sometimes do. Um, but there's obviously so many factors coming into play. It's not just a, a single thing that will lead to a definite outcome. It's the interplay of so many of these different things all coming together. So it's very hard to, to attribute cause to effect, um, which I think is why you can't find things in the research like that, isn't it, Rory? It's... Yeah, I think it's hard to like it's the same with um there there are some researchers i think out there who are trying to do like different levels of studies where they'll do within muscle cell studies then try and extrapolate that out to within uh like in vivo uh and then to actual inhuman like practical studies um but those are so hard to do because you've got to control so many things and there's so many factors like you said laura that, that tie into it um and there's probably so many signals happening all at the same time um that it's very hard to singularly dissect down to like one thing like what is testosterone doing within this massive amount of receptors and massive amount of processes within each muscle cell that's happening simultaneously um to be able to pare that down to like this one aspect of it is is really difficult um i think we're probably getting closer towards that but uh it's it's tough, very very tough to do for in research definitely I, th I think that's why the estrogen studies, um, it's very hard to get anything conclusive from them too, because if we think about how these studies are done, they either compare males to females as a way of saying estrogen, absence of estrogen, and that in itself, there's so much going on that's different there. It's very hard to attribute it to one thing because females have loads of hormones as well that males don't have and vice versa. So that in itself is limited in terms of what you can extrapolate. The other studies are doing like Rory said, so in vivo, maybe just creating some tissue cultures within a little Petri dish and then, you know, smothering it in estrogen and then having one that you just starve of estrogen because it's ethical to do that on tissue, but it's not ethical to get, take like one female and take all her estrogen away and not let her have any and then have another one and overdose her to see what the effect is. Um, and then the other studies that they use to extrapolate statements about estrogen from are young women where we know that estrogen is quite high and they have a menstrual cycle with um, postmenopausal women where there's a, a real lack of estrogen and again th there's so many other factors in there when it comes to training so age just makes a big difference we don't know what other age-related factors are in there causing causing the changes that we're seeing you know general fitness levels are different in these populations anyway to begin with and um, the type of exercise they're maybe used to doing 
um, and experienced with doing is probably quite different. So it becomes really hard to extrapolate this one factor that's a difference between these two populations is the cause of the difference in results we're seeing. And another massive group of studies that have been done to try and determine the effect that estrogen has on strength and muscle tissue growth, muscle growth, um, are animal-based studies and they do have quite strong results coming from those because they don't feel as ethical about the way they're treating the animals as what they would do to humans but definitely within the animal studies um, and I have quite a few here in front of me they do show that if you create an estrogen deficiency for quite long periods of time 24 weeks um, in, in mice and rats here they were able to show that it resulted in a 10% decrease in strength and an 18% decrease in cross-sectional area um, so sort of muscle tissue and uh, what you might think of as being hypertrophy or how much muscle you you have there um, and and these are quite significant results and they were then able to show in animal studies as well that following an extended period of unloading in an animal so taking the estrogen away for a long time and then giving it the estrogen back and trying to make it do lots of exercise that they would result in a, a increase in injured tissues so increase in injury um, after a prolonged period of um, reduction in estrogen. Now, another reason why it's hard to study in females is that within a, if you try and look at an age-matched population and you look at young females who are training, we never really have um, prolonged periods of estrogen deficiency. It's, it's very transient as an effect. So it rises and falls over the course of a month, but it's not sustained enough um, to observe some of these big differences like you can in an animal study. So it's very difficult to get at the, the thing that you want to control and, and devise the perfect experiment that lets you understand the cause or effect. But from everything that we can see, it does seem to suggest that when estrogen is lacking, some things happen. Um, yeah. In vague um, terms. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's important for for any kind of probably any study. I guess looking at uh, maybe not any study looking at hormones, but it seems to be from from maybe estrogen and testosterone level. The effects are, are just in such maybe on a longer term cycle and they maybe just compound over such a long period of time that again to really research that effectively you'd have to like recruit people for months at a time which uh, which is just like you can't again that reduces the amount of control you have and that's just um and that's why you've got to find those sort of odd populations of maybe subjects who like i said who maybe don't have uh, they're having to get rid of all the testosterone within their system or um, or you have to use animal studies because that's the only way you can really do that ethically. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, and I, I think from the stuff we're seeing here, it seems like it's more of a longer term gradual effect that these hormones probably, probably have than quite an acute response. It might not be quite as obvious what they're doing over the short term. Nice. So really, we're just all desperately hoping that um, we can get some illegal studies that are going on that basically do things unethically and we can find out the information. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't have to be illegal. I mean, you could volunteer yourself as test subject, have all your testosterone taken away, and let's see what happens. Do you know, literally, though, like, there's, there's more unethical things you can't do regardless of what the person says, though. So you can come in and be like, yeah, do this. And like, you can't do that. <laughs> I can't test you that way. I don't care. I don't care what he signed. You can't do that. Nah, yeah. you can the arm off. Um, this is murder. Um, okay. So I guess when we can move, kind of move on from there and then think about moving towards what that means as practical takeaways for people and what exactly they can do. So if we're um, thinking about what 
maybe you may need to adjust when it comes to your training, especially, don't know why I said especially, there's no need to say especially there. If you can adjust, okay, what someone can do, and we start off, let's say, with or your examples of the uh, maybe people you've come across or people you've worked with, uh, can you give um, an overview of what um, females uh, may need to think about when it comes to training um, and give them yeah, some practical plus some practical takeaways obviously it's, a, it's quite difficult just to give hard and fast rules but yeah yeah let's uh, let's think about um, obviously the whole population is as usually as always being described by a big bell-shaped curve and there'll be people who get extremes um, at both ends let's just think about that bang in the middle what the average result seems to say for an average person coming out of most experiments and might be the more more likely to be true in general case so as estrogen levels rise which is what can happen through the hormonal cycle there'll be periods where they're low periods where they're high what we tend to see in in, in high estrogen environments for the average person would be that muscle tissue stands a better chance of being able to grow I don't know why I'm not saying things in a very scientific way. <laughs> muscle tissue is more likely to be able to grow. And also muscle tissue itself in a high estrogen environment shows a better um, rate of recovery. So you may get less DOMS, you may be able to push a little bit harder. Um, recovery requirement is lower because that estrogen just helps with recovery, which makes sense. It's there so that after childbirth, you know, your body can just recover and all come back together again. And we get this little boost every cycle where that happens too. So it could be a really good time to, you know, increase your volume. Um, do lots of eccentric work where the DOMS risk might be quite high and normally stop you from doing it. The downside to this high estrogen environment is that the tendons and the ligaments, so we know that tendon attaches bone to bone and ligament attaches muscle to bone, they become a little bit stretchier. So that estrogen just lets them stretch a little bit. And that increased laxity can mean that you might struggle a little more with stability. Um, because these things give you lots of stabilization. And it also can mean that those tissues are more susceptible to injury themselves, because rather than the muscle doing all of the eccentric lengthening or most of the eccentric lengthening as it's designed to do, you might get a little bit of eccentric lengthening in these tissues um, to the point where they can be a little bit more likely to be damaged. Um, and, and what we do see, there are quite a lot of studies specifically on the ACL, um, uh, that's a, a ligament in the knee. And there's a massive difference um, in ACL injuries between males and females. And then if you look at the incidence of the ACL injury through a menstrual cycle, most of these incidents tend to happen when the, the estrogen would be expected to be high. Now, these studies measure it in different ways. Some of them, it's quite a good way of measuring. They'll actually go in and get the, a, a direct measurement of what the estrogen level is. And other ones are just assuming by someone telling them when their cycle is, what the estrogen level would be. Um, but it does seem to say that in a, and what's interesting about these studies is it's males compared to females, but they sport match. So they can sort of match for um, age and they can sort of say, let's look at football and it's males and females playing football. It's not, it's not different sports that they're doing. The females tend to have two to eight times higher rate of incidence and they, they attribute it to the rise in estrogen in their body. So you could tend to say, if you're a female in the strength sports, do you know what? What would lack of stability put me at risk of? Um, and if you were doing something like a, a one rep max or if you were in like Olympic lifting and doing things very, very quickly with very high load where stability is quite important, you might say, right, there's maybe a little bit more risk of me having an injury at that time. Now, 
everyone's so different though um, and some people are incredibly resistant to injury and have maybe never had an injury in 15 years of training in these sports even though they do the same thing throughout their cycle and other people would maybe start to notice if they tracked when their injuries happened and um, that they tended to always happen at a, a similar point of their menstrual cycle and um, what you would do would depend on what camp of the what, what of those camps you fall into I wouldn't say back off ever doing a one rep max if you've never experienced an injury like at a specific time. But if you do, it might be worth just trying to modify your training to um, account for that. Um, now, something else that can have an effect that isn't related to um, directly to the muscle tissue, the ligaments or the tendons is estrogen's role in metabolism. Now, it, it does affect your metabolism. And what has been noted is that in an increased estrogen environment, um, body temperatures can be higher. Um, there can be a decrease in blood flow to the surface of the skin, making it harder to cool down and just making training feel more uncomfortable than it would in a low estrogen environment. And what that can mean is that for the same load or the same training, your RPE might just feel higher. Um, and I definitely remember noticing this one myself, something would just feel harder. It didn't change what I was able to do, but how uncomfortable it was would rise. Um, now, again, if you're that type of person, if you're training to absolute loads, um, it might just be worth recognizing that at some points it feels more difficult and you just know that's going to be the case and you have a why, it makes sense. Um, but if you're training to RPEs, it might be worth noticing that there'll be points in your cycle where maybe your load drops to maintain an RPE. And again, you would just know why. And you could choose either just to suck it up and suffer or you could choose to modify your training approach to um, uh, make it more compatible with what you're experiencing. But I think a really important thing in the in the female context when it comes to menstrual cycle is start getting used to just tracking your menstrual cycling with your training. You know, you record things are important, like how well you sleep, how that affects your strength, what you're lifting in a training session, how that varies over the course of a month. Start tracking your menstrual cycle too. And if there is a pattern there, you have the knowledge and you can work with it to make sure that you optimize your training. Um, may mean that you don't need to do anything. Maybe you do. It'll vary from person to person. Yeah, I think um, I think it's it's important for for people who are listening to to kind of understand that when it comes to these sorts of things, a lot of the times the considerations are are under or need to be taken more into account for someone training under high high intensities and high loads. Um, where if you are much lower moderate intensities, and that is relative as well, high intensity is relative to the person um, at what stage they're at. You may not need to take these things into such a big account. So if you are nowhere close to sort of your you know, maximum intensities um if you're a beginner you probably don't want to be training around there anyway at that point nor maybe do you really know how to but um if you aren't close to that you probably don't need to take it like find this information i guess concerning than anything else the other one as well which would be interested to know is um when it came to the acl injuries when it came to women did they also account for things like key angle as well because that's a huge predictor of acl injuries I don't remember seeing that mentioned within the summary. Um, I'd probably have to go into some of the studies themselves to have a look, but yeah. um, not mentioned in the sort of review article here. Um, I always think it's just stuff like that as well to take into account as well, like if, if they thought about it. Because another big predictor of, of knee injury too is is the key angle within the, usually the female, because they tend to usually have a broader broader hips um, and that knee tends to be placed under a lot more stress and then under certain intensities and there's a higher likelihood of an ACL. So that could be completely... Um, unrelated to estrogen and menstrual cycle, but I guess 
which you've kind of mentioned before, is, is being careful about taking information and, and maybe latching on to it a wee bit too much and then getting fear and concern where it's just not necessary. Um, yeah, they're really good points. I think, you know, massive flaws in just comparing males to females and attributing all the differences to estrogen. We know there are physiological differences and there are so many other hormones as well between these genders. There's even differences in the way people play. So I, I think if you watch a female version of a sport, and this could get people hating on me for saying it, and a male version of the sport, they, they can be played differently, um, I, I think. Um, and, and with a lot of other things as well, like the ways that females can approach things, we get people at the outside of the curves, but I think there are differences in play sometimes too. Um, sure. Games aren't exactly yeah. the same. Um, yeah, someone jump in who knows about these sports yeah. and save me from <laughs> hanging myself. Yeah, no, no, you, no, we're just sitting here watching. Lauren will no longer be on the podcast. Um, <laughs> we're like, yeah. Silenced. Oh, that's good. Yeah, there's a lot of factors. Um, you know, the females are yeah. far more skilled, so of course they're not, you know, but wait, that would take right. It's going to stop that, that yeah, argument. Stop, stop. But I think your other really key point that I want to come back to that you said that's really true is, yes, a lot of what I'm saying here would apply to people who are training at the peak levels of these sports. So if we think about strength sports and we think about someone who is lifting many, many multiples of their own body weight as a one rep max, or, you know, in the case of a bench press, repping out with over their own body weight on the bar, um, that person really relies on the structural integrity of all the tissue that's there and will notice a slight change a lot more than someone who is way more at the novice or intermediate level of the, the training spectrum. Because when we're looking at the change in laxity of these tissues, the studies that are covered in this review here are sort of saying that at the max, so for the people who are kind of going, you know, from maybe low estrogen to 100 times the level of estrogen, what they are measuring, and remember these studies are very limited, is something like an 18% increase in laxity. Now, if you're nowhere near the limit as to what your tendons and ligaments can handle when it comes to stabilizing the loads that you're moving, if you're so far from that limit, an 18% change at max probably won't make you go to being completely unstable, you're probably still working with a load that you have enough stability to control. Whereas if you're someone who's really at the limit of what you're pushing those um, connective tissues to do when it comes to support, 18% change could be the difference between, you know, dislocation and everything being completely fine. So it really does depend on where you are training within that spectrum. And I would say that these kind of effects come into people who are really pushing the high end um, of, of athleticism and, and performance in these sports and not necessarily something to worry about at, at the lower end um, where you're still well within your body's capability. It wouldn't make sense from a biological perspective if your body just broke, you know, carrying a bag of shopping because you're in a specific phase of your menstrual cycle. That's that's not going to happen. It's, it's more when you're pushing your body to extremes. I am... Um... I feel like uh, that reference of carrying a bag of shopping was, was a bit sexist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm joking. Um, I think, yeah, I, I agree. Also, um, just to kind of touch on terminology and language of these things, a lot of the sort of stuff whenever people are, are measuring and talk about this and they talk about stable and unstable, when you when you take that to, to people who are then trying to apply that during training, it can be really, really unhelpful to think about these areas of being stable and unstable and what they mean and the image that can conjure up so someone gets quite concerned in an aspect that they are very unstable what that literally means in terms of how responsive that area is is very different from what that person actually visualizes it as being and uh, gives that aspect of i'm unstable and things are going to fall out of place it's like that's not quite what's meant by that so even at that point if someone were to say to test the area and it's quite lax and say it's it's relatively unstable based upon 
where you would like it to be in terms of the demands that you have. This doesn't literally mean like trying to balance, you know, a bunch of, of um, like chairs on top of one another, single leg at a time or something like this thing is going to collapse. Um, yeah. Very, very different. I think that's also something that can be misconstrued. I, I think in a way, um, stability is something that you, you have within your control to an extent. It's not just something you are and now you, now you can't do anything about it. So say even you are a person who's extremely hypermobile, I'm extremely hypermobile. I would argue that my natural state of my tendons and ligaments is to have a lot of laxity in them. Um, that doesn't really matter because you, you can train within that context and you can just get the muscle strength um, and sort of a good balance across the muscle strength and, and, and move in a way that just gives you that control still. Um, it's not necessarily that you need to have all of those tissues at a, a specific um, tension level. Otherwise, you just will fall apart if you lift something. Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. Just someone that's just like, it's just like, don't get out of bed today. Yeah. <laughs> Can't be trusted to do it. Your anything. level of instability no, today is insane. This is an N equals one sample, but I would argue that I'm already a hypermobile person, extremely, extremely flexible. I've never at any point, even in a menstrual cycle, thought I'm too unstable to lift that. Like, it's not really an issue. It's not, okay, in thinking of the example of my shoulder dislocated in the bench press, but I was pregnant <laughs> then. That wasn't estrogen. That was that know, was relaxing, and that was a lot. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Rory thought the exact same thing as well, though. You know that that's what came in completely. Also, it's also worth noting in that one, too, is like if that is before then, right? Whenever you had shoulder uh, issues with your shoulders and the area being damaged and damage to the labrum, which does make the area difficult to stabilize, especially the shoulder joint in the way it's com uh, composed. You know, you did so much strength training around it that you're overhead pressing, benching with no problems whatsoever. Exactly. It's a scenario where the extreme of relaxing and um, uh, a pregnancy with a, you know, we'll term the aesthetic mindset. And then sometimes you push and you go, maybe, maybe given the scenario that we're going to do. I, I think in, instability or tendon and ligament laxity just shows up where you are not strong enough using your muscles from a muscular perspective. So the, the solution to it is not just to fear the fact that you're unstable. It's to go, you know what? Okay, let's just give some muscle strength here. Let's become strong enough to function like this and then yeah you have something that seems unstable you work on strengthening and then you become stable it's not just a, a state that you have to deal with it's something that you you work to overcome yeah sorry i could spend all day on this one i think it, i haven't seen it from a few different perspectives before of one where um in an SC background where it was like practically dismissed it's been like how can you be unstable if you can lift this sort of things and then the other extreme where the person is like I don't know if I can walk sort of thing. It's um, it's just interesting to try and find that middle ground again, an explanation of what that means and what that, that refers to with that person. Rory, see when it comes to um, meals um, and what, the considerations there, I just got, you know, you know what, yeah. I'm, what I'm doing. Um, the considerations there when it comes to um, training and yeah i mean for our population i guess we we're predominantly talking to people who are natural competitors um and for for those guys they're um as we said as we said previously the evidence suggests that this it doesn't it isn't the main driving factor it is a factor but it's not going to be the biggest one so really it doesn't seem to be useful to modify your training in relation to your testosterone levels um and also, 
testosterone is or hormones like it they are the um are used in the rebuilding process post-training so that's where you're probably going to use them more so so they're going to actually be in that muscle building phase so you can help increase your testosterone levels or you put put things in place that help it and it's just like common it's pretty common advice it's like make sure you're getting decent sleep make sure your stress levels aren't excessively high make sure you're in a decent eating enough calories to support your training those sort of things all seem to put you in a position where testosterone is higher um and it might be worthwhile just mentioning that there there is like testosterone works often in tandem with cortisol um which is a stress hormone so like when you're really stressed your cortisol is going to be higher and that has cortisol itself has lots of factors and it does seem to does seem to impact again the role may not be massive if you are still resistance training but it might blunt the response you get from it slightly if you're full of cortisol all the time um especially when you're trying to recover you might not be able to recover as well between training and i think i believe if you do have a lot of cortisol this also seems to be linked with um it's harder to then reduce fat mass i think if you have a lot of cortisol in your system as well um and what seems to help that is just finding activities that allow you to fully relax, finding something that allows your brain to kind of switch off. And on top of that, then good sleep um, and good, decent nutrition. So all those seem to be the factors that really will drive big changes um, versus having to, say, use a testosterone supplement, for example, which uh, do not seem to be that robust in their response like it doesn't uh, currently they don't seem to be working too well what a what a political answer that was fantastic (laughs) well they might people might develop new ones that might work really really well you never know but so far it seems like it doesn't really work too uh well um yeah that's that's really good i think um the like the again the cortisol aspect and when it comes to comes to that one and, and people especially really in the fitness industry jumping on these things it's like again you know we're talking about um or i should say rory is talking about like you know chronically elevated cortisol levels you know something that is that is problematic over time cortisol is also something that's very important in terms of of fat breakdown and also in terms of losing body fat highly chronically elevated yeah there's some pretty strong links to central adiposity and when it comes to like insulin problems with insulin sensitivity and things like that but you know you, you can also end up jumping on that bandwagon where you can you can hear demonized cortisol and then i think we've probably all seen the responses there where people talking about they can't lose body fat because they're overstressing themselves by doing too much cardio and it's like it doesn't stop that happening it can just make it difficult it was chronically elevated um, it doesn't completely eradicate any changes that are there. Um, and also, I, I kind of get the feeling, I think that's where the whole um, charge polyquin biosignature thing, like he just took chronically elevated cortisol and then he just went straight in there to like, if I measure this, I can tell you that how well you handle carbohydrates and things like this. And it's like, I don't think that's quite correct. Um, but hey ho. So. yeah yeah just for ram just ram with that one just it's like yeah i can see where this goes Let's yeah, keep a lot of money out of it you know playing on fears um just the the something about with testosterone Rory, what do you think 
or what would you suggest in terms of age-related factors or people who may be slightly older populations where there will be a decline in testosterone? Is there anything for them to think about when it comes to training or modifying their training? Yeah, so there was some there were some studies that again it doesn't seem to be perfectly clear that there is a like a definite relationship between uh, testosterone declining with age and muscle mass declining with age. It doesn't seem to be there. There is a, a strong link. Some do find some, some don't. It's it's hard to exactly say if that again is the driving factor massively. Um, but my my understanding is that. Um, this testosterone acts in like a negative feedback loop. So if you have basically, it's going to, your body's going to down regulate testosterone when it gets too high, it's going to not going to use it as much. So what that would suggest is if you are taking like exogenous or you're giving yourself testosterone, um, it might be that your body almost becomes reliant on that over time. And then your body just doesn't feel the need to produce it because it's getting it exogenously. Maybe that could be something that happens. So you might just have to keep upping the dose potentially until you're, for example, which if you, I mean, if you really want to do that, you could probably do that. Um, but uh, for, like I said, for kind of maybe natural athletes or maybe going into the, the masters and all that sort of stuff, uh, you, you can't really do that. So, um, it doesn't seem to play as big of a factor, um, but most of the studies are usually on young men, uh, young like university age men when it comes to this sort of research stuff. When I'm talking about, say, the acute studies where we mentioned at the start where people are um, not seeing the causal link between testosterone being high and muscle growth being high. Um, so it could be different in a different population is what i'm saying so it might change but um if uh, yeah if you want to use it and cover all your bases when you're getting older and want to continue to hopefully gain muscle mass during that time uh then and you're not in a tested federation then why yeah i mean if you want to go for it i think nice and then laura just when it comes to to females considering maybe age-related factors of even thinking about menopause or something you've spoken about before when it comes to um, menstrual cycle and also um, going on the contraceptive pill if there's any information that might be worth thinking about there when it comes to lifters yeah so i guess what the studies are showing here is that um postmenopausal women there is a definite um decrease measured response to anabolic stimuli and there is a loss of muscle mass um as the age um what they've been able to do is they have been able to do some isolation in this case um, and they've done age match. So they've, 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 they've compared it to males of a similar age. Um, when these females are given estrogen replacement therapy, so just estrogen given to them, um, their anabolic response um, was normalized. So they were able to start adding that muscle mass and slowing the loss down. And that was just with estrogen replacement therapy. So that does seem to work. Um, they start to get age-matched responses again with the males um, to the um, resistance exercise. Um, so the, the studies do show the importance of estrogen um, in females um, when it comes to the sensitivity of muscle to anabolic signaling. Um, but more research is needed. They don't really know what this means for monthly cycles with females when it comes to anabolic response. And if there's periods where you're not really responding, I would say there just isn't evidence here yet to suggest you should do anything or even think about it. Like, 
there's just lack of evidence. There's there's no reason to suggest that you should do something there. Another thing to consider, though, and you touch on it when you talk about maybe like females prepping and thinking about their hormone levels um, in bodybuilding. It's not just about um, whether or not you are anabolic or not um, or protecting yourself against muscle breakdown although it does suggest that having high estrogen environment does protect against muscle breakdown which could be important deep in a prep and um, another thing that's important is the effect that the estrogen and also its partner hormone progesterone have on your metabolism um, and I, there's two examples here there's one bodybuilder that I worked with um, a female and incredibly athletic strong um, and at the beginning of a prep for about eight weeks uh, we just saw what looked to be resistance to fat loss and I was extremely reluctant to go in and just start slashing calories. It didn't make sense. Um, so she was referred out to um, her doctor um, and she saw a specialist. And it was determined that there were low levels of progesterone um, that the cycle wasn't really functioning as it should. And when she was supplemented with a progesterone um, only pill, um, the immediate apparent resistance to fat loss just disappeared and it, it all became very rapid. So sometimes these hormones being out of balance um, and it's not just about the absolute level, it's about whether they rise or fall over the course of a cycle, whether they're balanced with the other hormones as they rise and fall over the course of a cycle can make something look like it's um, a resistance um, when actually it's just something's not quite firing and you bring that hormone in and suddenly the body responds in a way you'd want it to respond and in my case of this story I definitely noticed that um, for a particular week I would gain maybe one to two kilos of water weight quite quickly just overnight on the scale um, and if you're a bodybuilder who's down at maybe you know in figure class like 10% body fat that one to two kilos of water on a 55 53 kilo frame is quite significant and especially because that water would mostly accumulate around with a sort of lower abdominal um bloating look um as a way of just controlling for that and not being a, a victim to that happening maybe on competition day i chose to just take a, a contraceptive pill through prep as a way of just being able to choose when i experienced certain weeks of my cycle and make sure that it didn't happen um on stage day so using using um synthetic versions of these hormones can have use but with everything you know there's an upside there's a downside and you know work with your doctor and make sure that you're not just guessing what you think is right and wrong and self-dosing um hmm. yeah in terms of just when it comes to prep say for instance i know a lot of um competitors will lose their their menstrual cycle or basically they won't, they won't have the period whenever they're they get to really low levels of body fat mm. um just a consideration for um tracking um changes in body weight any advice there uh, i'm just thinking from working with with females when it came to uh tracking their weekly average and the fluctuations there you know if we're looking for a certain amount of fat loss and a, or a body weight loss to indicate fat loss on a week-to-week -week basis what might you consider if you are female? I think everything that you'd consider to be good advice for a male, good advice for a human is good advice for a female, like keeping it quite nice and slow, you know, like half a percent, one percent. For females, it doesn't tend to be the rate of loss. Like the rate, of, if the weight loss is too fast, there will be like a negative effect on hormone hormones. But it tends to be that you will just cross a threshold whereby female body fat is too low and it doesn't support a menstrual cycle anymore. Um, I'm not quite sure what that level is. It might vary from person to person. I found out about... Again, I didn't know my body fat, I was estimating, but definitely always within a couple of months before prep, there was just no period. And it was a part of the sport. You've gone too lean, your body is too lean to support growing a child um, and your menstrual cycle will just stop. And it will then come back when body fat crosses that threshold again. 
Um, so I think for me, it was more of an absolute threshold. But what I would say to do, what I did was I tracked my cycle when I wasn't prepping, I tracked it through prepping. I, I took something called basal body temperature, which is an indicator of ovulation, whether it's occurred or not. And that in itself is a kind of big indicator that tells you whether or not all the right hormones are rising and falling at the right time. It doesn't tell you which one isn't moving or which one is too low or which one isn't rising and falling. But just by tracking basal body temperature, it's a good indication as to whether or not a cycle is occurring. Um, and I, I kept that tracking going and I realized when something was wrong because there was just absence of period, but then there was also a flattening of the basal body temperature. It wasn't rising and falling. And then I kept tracking that um, after prep because a big priority of mine was to bring that normal cycling back it was very important I guess considering that I'd had so many eating disorders in the past that I returned to health well and I am um, I think the things that Rory touched on that, that make male testosterone at a healthy level um, are similar to what make the female cycle return so getting enough sleep minimizing stress eating enough calories having enough body fat training at a level that's not too excessive for what you're able to recover from and manage. Um, these things all just bring that cycle back again in time, because I guess for the female, the cycle is there to indicate that, you know, everything is at a healthy level, uh, which isn't necessarily what you prioritize for your deep in prep. You're, you know, you're probably not healthy. You're probably quite stressed. You're probably under eating and too lean and you know, it, it just takes a while for those things to come back. But I tracked it because it was quite nice to look and it helped with coming out of prep, not just to be going, oh, getting getting more body fat, getting more body fat, but to go, look, health is returning. This body fat is a good thing. Look, the cycle is coming back. And it did take quite a while, I remember, but I did maybe six or seven preps within two years and two or three years. It was quite excessive. Um, but it's a nice thing to see return, to, to know that that body fat coming back is doing something positive. And you see that within your training numbers. And at the same time, you see that within um, natural function returning to um, your body in other ways. That's cool. Nice. Um, yeah, definitely. I think that um, being able to sort of reframe that one is, is quite helpful. Um, and if, if, you are, um, if you are recording your, your body weight and you sort of use it as a weekly average to test or sort of a test to sort of use that as a measurement or an indicator as to whether there is a, what you want in terms of um, rate of weight loss. Um, and hopefully, hopefully that's an indicator towards fat loss is that, you know, just being aware that every so often you may see that that change. And I guess working from males, it's easier to look at that from a week to week basis quite reliably. And when it comes to females, not quite the sort of thing, same thing. You have to keep that average looking maybe for two weeks or and look at over the course of a month and things like this. And if someone is maybe really heavily focused upon that scale, reducing down as an indicator of progress, they may forget the fact that you can see a difference there when it comes to their menstrual cycle, especially in the earlier stages of a prep. Yeah, it's very important not to panic and just rush in and bring in a stricter cup because something looks stagnant or looks to have increased, but yeah. to have that big picture in mind and, and just to go, you know what evidence suggests if we ride this out for a week, you'll see that come back down again. Definitely. Um, I think that it going into your prep in general, having even trying to manage your stress, whether you're male or female is extremely important. Even when it comes to powerlifting, really, it has a huge effect in terms of how well you're going to do in the day from a, especially in a point when you are trying to hold on the muscle mass from bodybuilding, if your stress levels are extremely high, it can have a huge effect as to how you look on stage day. Um, so that's worth just trying to manage overall anyway, even regardless of specifically trying to regain the menstrual cycle. Okay, guys, we'll wrap it up there. Um, okay, guys, if you're listening, hopefully um, 
you learned something from that podcast. It was some pretty good good information. Um, if you'd like to find out more about us, um, then please just check our Instagram. Uh, post a lot of content on there. Um, and also we have our website, www.gtgperformance.com. Um, and we will see you next week. Thank <laughs> you.